Hello and welcome to Carers Link Lowdown, the podcast for unpaid carers in Eastern Bartonshire. My name's Katie and the subject of today's podcast is guardianship. And it's going to be the first of three we have planned on the subject because it's quite complicated. So today's podcast will be an overview of guardianship and capacity. And then in the next podcast, we'll go a bit more into the nitty gritty of what you need to do if you want to get guardianship. Um, And then in the final podcast, we're going to talk more about once you are a guardian, what you have to do. And we're going to be joined then in the discussion by uh, a parent carer who has agreed to share her experiences of getting guardianship and, and how she's coping and what she's doing now that she's got that. So I am no expert on guardianship, so I have been joined today by an expert, by a solicitor who is an expert in guardianship, and his name is Martin. Welcome, Martin. So, Martin, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about the organisation that you work for? Certainly, certainly. I'm Martin Monaghan. I'm head of the Civil Court Department at Caesar and Howie Solicitors. And last year, we launched Parent Carers Legal Support, or Pickles is what we refer to it for short. That's effectively a, a website help set up as a contribution towards supporting, informing, guiding parent carers through the process of guardianship. And as part of that initiative, we, we deal with free advice sessions for anyone that requires it, including organisations. I, in my own capacity, am an accredited specialist by the Law Society of Scotland in incapacity and mental disability law. And also prior to that, and still am an accredited specialist in family law. I run a team of solicitors dealing with this, and we run about 150, 160 guardianship files at any one time. So as a result of that, lots of experience to take from there. That's excellent. I hadn't realised the hundred that's a lot of a lot of guardianship cases you're dealing with. So I suppose the first question is what is guardianship and who is it for? Who needs it? Guardianship is needed by anyone who lacks capacity. In other words, if they are determined by the doctors that this is a person who doesn't have capacity to make their own decisions, then that's when guardianship is required. And I compare it to the ability to make decisions as being 26 letters of the alphabet, A to Z. You can have someone who can be quite happily making their own decisions from A right the way up to X, but just can't make the decisions Y and Z. And those would be individuals that would require guardianship for only a little bit, whereas others would require guardianship for every single power and every single decision which might have to be made out there but generally speaking it starts when you're usually it's a, it's a lifelong condition and usually in our experience it's someone who's under 16 years of age happily living with mum and dad or parent care or whoever and they reach the age of 16 years of age and everyone realizes there's a bit of a problem now because at 16 years of age you don't have parental rights and responsibilities to make all decision-making things or all decisions on behalf of your children anymore. At that point, they become adults in the eyes of, uh, of the law, and therefore they have to make their 
own decisions. And that's usually where all the various support groups, organisations, social work department, everybody else will start hounding you, saying, oh, it's time you really want to be doing something. And the doing of something is all about guardianship at that point. It applies equally to those who are in their, if their later years who may have lost capacity or are losing capacity as a result of Alzheimer's, dementia, or some other condition that happens at that particular time. Or indeed, at any point in anyone's lifetime, there can be a catastrophic injury of some description, which results in a person losing capacity. So it covers all the spectrum of ages, but more often than not, it's youngsters coming up through the ranks, as it were, which is where the biggest challenges come and they have to be dealt with. So what I can move on to now is, what is capacity? How does one determine whether a person is or is not incapable? Now, or capable rather. Now, there are, there's a statutory requirement for this. It's in the Adults with Incapacity Act. And without going into the, the details of it, essentially what you're looking to identify is whether the person is able to be acting in relation to the making of decisions, making decisions, communicating decisions, understanding decisions, and retaining the memory of decisions. Now, Really, you and I know on a day-to-day basis when we're speaking with people, whether you're speaking with someone that has capacity, that's just something as part of your human nature. We're able to make that determination. We're also able to make a determination of whether the person in front of us perhaps isn't getting what we're saying, isn't fully processing it, isn't fully understanding it. And all of that tends to suggest that the person you're looking at and the person in front of you lacks capacity. Now, clearly, I'm not a doctor, you're not a doctor, no one's a doctor here. So in those circumstances, we would defer to the doctors to ultimately decide whether or not a person does or does not have capacity. And in borderline cases, it also involves a psychologist of some description carrying out various assessments. Now, if we assume that having gone through these particular assessments, the person does have capacity, in other words, they are just able to make decisions, that way the person can move on and actually give powers to someone else to deal with their affairs on their behalf by way of a power of attorney. And I only explain power of attorney very briefly at this point because people are a little more familiar with what a power of attorney is. Essentially, if you want to give decision-making powers about you as an individual for money or welfare issues, you can complete a power of attorney, which once fully executed will allow those people to make those decisions on your behalf where the law permits them to do so. That's a power of attorney process. But only if you have capacity can you grant a power of attorney. And even if the doctor says you have capacity, only if you can actually make a solicitor understand what you want, would you be able to prepare a power of attorney. But as people understand it, that's usually where we start when talking about guardianship. In other words, if you have capacity, you do a power of attorney. If you don't have capacity, you effectively do the same thing, subject to lots of restrictions, by way of guardianship. But it's generally the same idea. You are simply going to the court to get the power to deal with someone's affairs, as opposed to that someone giving you the power to deal with your affairs. And that's essentially what power of attorney is all about. You go to the court, you acquire your powers, and then you continue to deal with matters on behalf of the person you're appointed to deal with. Now, anyone over 16 can grant powers of attorney and guardianship can be granted for anyone over 16, because as I said, under that age, 
mum, dad, granny, parent, carer, whoever it happens to be, they're the ones that have the legal permission to deal with matters on behalf of that particular person. So we'll assume for our discussion that the person doesn't have capacity and the doctor's quite happily saying this is someone who doesn't have capacity to deal with their own affairs. That way, we're launching straight into the actual guardianship and what it's about and what do you do. So who applies for guardianship? Most important thing, who's the one that's going to be applying? Usually, it's whoever's looking after the person you're, you're dealing with. And usually in the case of a child, that will be mum and dad, might be only one of them, might be a sibling, might be an aunt, but generally anybody can apply for guardianship for anybody else. Whether they're suitable or whether they're appropriate is a different discussion, but anyone in the first instance can apply for guardianship. Usually mum, dad, parent carers, but can be siblings. I've seen best friends do it for people. It just depends on the circumstances and who's there. You can apply as one person. You can apply as a joint person. You can put substitutes on in case you're no longer able to do the job or you resign. Any number of combinations we can put together to decide who is actually going to apply. Now, just generally speaking, the duties of a guardian, and we're talking about the actual pragmatics of the process in a later podcast, so just now it's just a bit of an overview. The duties of the guardians are you can only ever do things that are to the benefit of the person before you. Now, most people would only ever do things that are to the benefit of the person anyway. If you think of the example of your child, you're not really going to do anything that's going to cause your child any harm or damage, and you're always going to be doing what's best for them. Same idea in relation to a guardianship. You have to do things for the benefit of the person that you're appointed to deal with. We refer to that person as an adult, short for adult with incapacity, but like all things, there's a degree of jargon involved, but it's really the person you're looking for guardianship for. Now, those duties, again, are provided within the rules, as it were, within the statute book, and basically we refer to them as being five principles. Principle number one is it has to be to the benefit of the individual. In other words, it's good for them. Principle two is we refer to it as minimum intervention. And what that is, you only get what you need. You do not get everything. And that's a big difference between power of attorney and guardianship. Guardianship, you get what you need and nothing more, or what you're likely to need and nothing more. Power of attorney, you can virtually give everything to somebody. You just can't do that in a guardianship application. The court will not allow you to get everything on the off chance that you might need something at some future date. You have to be a lot more tailored and a lot more precise about what you're looking for. And that's part of the nitty gritty discussions which we can have later. You're required to take into the third principle, which is the individual's wishes. Now, if the, the person you're looking for guardianship for has historic wishes which can be identified, for example, if you're dealing with granny, granny might have expressed views over a long period of time which someone can tell you about, you'd expect you to respect those wishes where possible. Alternatively, using granny again, granny might be able to express her current wishes. Now, it doesn't mean that her current wishes are sensible or that they're fully thought through, but they are still wishes which are required to be taken into account. Doesn't mean you have to follow them, but you have to take them into account and deal with that as best you can. You're also expected to ensure that every possible means of communication is undertaken, every reasonable means of communication is undertaken to 
communicate with the person that you're acquiring powers for because different people require different means of doing so. Next principle is consult. You're expected to consult with all individuals that are considered relevant to the case. Now, use, those individuals are usually, if you like, above in the family tree, across in the family tree, and below the family tree from the person you're dealing with. So if it's your child, then it would be use parents, any brothers and sisters. And if it's a child, they're not going to have their own children. But with grannies and grandpas, brothers and sisters, parents may if they're alive, and they probably got their own children as well. You're expected to consult with anyone that's relevant. It might be the next door neighbour if they're closely involved. It might be a very good friend, but they're people you're expected to consult with. Again, it doesn't mean you have to do what they tell you. You simply have to discuss it, consult it, take into account, and then deal with the decisions in line with the other principles that we're speaking about. And the fifth principle is to promote the skills of the individual themselves. You're expected to encourage the individual to exercise whatever skills they have concerning their property, finances, and personal welfare, and to continue to develop those skills as best can be developed and perhaps develop new ones if it's possible. That's probably best looked at in the context of a cash machine. Some people can learn how to use a cash machine. Some people can be supported in the use of a cash machine and some people can't do it at all. It depends upon the nature of the individual in front of you and how you would potentially do that or not as the case may be. Okay, now, People often ask me, what's the big difference on a 16th birthday compared to being 15? Well, the reality and practice is really nothing. Life will continue the way it was before. Doctors will still, generally speaking, speak to you the way they did before. They will still do everything that's required for you at that point. The social work department will still involve you as before, but they will continue to say to you, guardianship is something you should do. It is something which is appropriate. It is something that you should take on board and they will encourage you as best they can to make sure that you do so. But the reality is nothing's really going to change on the 16th birthday. But overview of what actual powers exist, what sort of things would you actually need powers to do that you didn't need on the 15th birthday? Examples, the big one is always the, the medical treatment. Doctors dentists, they will make sure that the young adult with incapacity or the old adult with incapacity, as the case may be, will be looked after. Any caring requirements will be dealt with. The doctors have to do that regardless. So if someone is ill, they will be treated regardless of who the actual decision maker is and whether there's guardianship or not, a power of attorney or not. The person will be treated. However, as we'll all know that the practicalities of treatment are often a case of phoning up on behalf of someone to find out from the doctor where the prescription is or what other things are required or to try and get a little bit of information that's necessary for some other organisation. And that's where you'll run into the buffers without powers because you will often be faced with the, the demon receptionist who you just can't get past anywhere near the GP, for example, and they won't speak to you necessarily because as far as they're concerned, you don't have any powers. You're talking about a young adult who's 16. They won't necessarily know that this is an adult with incapacity. And even if they did, 
you don't have the powers. And you can't just rely on the doctor who's known you all these years to say, oh, the doctor knows me, it'll be fine. Because the doctor does know you and the doctor probably will be fine. But that doesn't mean everybody else in the practice knows that or that when you get down to the strict letter of the rules and procedures that they will have those conversations. So that's a practically practical reason for making sure you absolutely have some sort of official welfare powers so you can say to the receptionist, yes, thanks very much. I'm the guardian. You've got my records in there. Would you mind just giving me the information? Thank you very much. Love and kisses, Martin, so on and so forth. Those are the discussions that you would be able to have if you had those particular powers compared to not having those particular powers when they might and they increasingly do become harder to deal with. Now, money powers, anything to do with money, and by money we're talking about tenancy agreements, if you happen to be someone, a child who's quite happy to live in a community amongst similarly able or children, you can deal with that. Running of bank accounts, investments, anything of that description, really anything that requires a signature, because the person has to understand what's on the document, that is something which you would require powers for. And you'll appreciate it's a vast area of things that can potentially come up. But usually it's to do with money of one description or another, and in particular, the accommodation side of things. Specifics for you, self-directed support. You may well have a self-directed support package from the local authority. By and large, from a guardianship perspective, depending upon the nature of your self-directed support, you will either simply need welfare powers, or you will also need financial powers. And it just depends what sort of self-directed support you've got. The usual rule of thumb is if you're actually receiving cash readies in your hand to go and pay other people personally, that would require powers for you to continue to use those self-directed support budgets. Now, they're not going to stop them overnight. They would just say, get on and deal with these powers and get it dealt with. And again, that very much depends upon the nature of the individual and we provide the answer as best we can for that. Welfare issues, which people often forget about, especially these days, relates to more often than not youngsters, and that's the use of the internet. Now, internet, access to it, using it, protecting from others on it, all the things that you would absolutely do for your youngster, if we're talking about a youngster up until their 16th birthday, all of those require powers after the 16th birthday. The favourite one is the tracker. Now, lots of parents say to their children, well, you, I'm giving you your first mobile phone, et cetera, et cetera, but make sure you know there is a tracker in there. I know where you are at all times, and it's part of the deal of me giving you this phone that that tracker is on so that I know where you are for your safety. And that's just part of the parental duties that may or may not exist or that may, not, may or may not be in place. But to have that similar arrangement with an adult with incapacity who's now turning 16, that person would have to understand all of that and give you permission. And of course, if they're lacking in capacity, how can they do all of that? That's the sort of power you would acquire from the court, the ability to keep an eye on someone. Now, the courts don't often give the ability to, to track someone's whereabouts, but it is possible in certain circumstances. What they're far more comfortable doing is giving the power to manage the internet on the person's behalf. In other words, you can take control over passwords, phone access, web access, whether it's by way of Xbox, PlayStation, however the, the young adult is communicating. The chances are they'll be on WhatsApp, 
Facebook, all those things that are out there and can be used to cause problems for individuals and can be used to manipulate and cause harm to individuals, you would require the power to officially manage them on their behalf. Other ones would be power of restraint. The, very rarely is that required, but I have known some youngsters who are very, very physical, potentially violent, don't like getting their jabs from the doctors and have to be restrained, if you like, in a particular way to allow them to receive their medication. And we've also dealt with a number of young adults over the years who do actually from time to time have to be physically restrained. And there are particular specialist powers for that. Very rare. You have to jump through a lot of hoops to acquire those powers lot of reports and a lot of medical backgrounds, but it's possible in certain circumstances for that to be acquired. So what then if you turn around and say, oh, Martin, I've been listening to you really carefully, but do you know what? It's just not for me. I'm just, I just don't want to do this. I'm just it's not for me. Don't want to get involved in it. Too much hassle. Not interested. Well, do you know what? I'm not your mother. I can't force you to do things. Ultimately, you're the author of your own fortune, or in this case, potential misfortune. Because if you don't do all of these things, there may come a point where someone will have to step in on your behalf and actually assume those powers on your behalf. Now, it doesn't happen very often, and it usually only becomes an issue where there's potential social work involvement and perhaps not happy with how things are going would be a polite way of saying it. In those circumstances, the social work department can step in and they can apply to the court via the council and they can become the guardian on behalf of the person that you're normally responsible for and they would take over those decision-making powers. Again, reasonably rare, but it does happen and it happens because you as an individual didn't get round to doing it yourself when you could have got round to doing it yourself, where it was less likely to have been a problem. And as I say to clients all the time, where you are the guardian, you're the decision maker. And if someone doesn't like the decisions you're making, they have to show that you're not making correct decisions and justify that to the court action. And that's difficult to do because if you've got any decision that you can make, you might have one, two or three different options. Who's to say options A, B and C are different? Who's to say you should have gone A when you actually went C? It's very difficult to get those powers taken away from you once you have them, whereas it's a lot easier not to give them to you in the first place by the council stepping in and asking for them. So they won't do it unless it's absolutely required, but they can do it, and in my experience, they have done, and it does create some disquiet. So when do you actually apply? You apply usually round about your child's 16th birthday. That's the, the, the best time to apply. For various reasons, we recommend you contact solicitors way before then, probably about 15 and a quarter these days because there's a large delay within the social work department for allocating the persons that are required to produce the reports which allow guardianship to be granted. So if you come along 15 and a quarter or so, that gives us plenty of time to get into the queue get the person allocated and progress with your application. So that would usually be the date. If it's anybody else, if you're looking for an adult, then it's all down to what's 
urgent. If it's granny, the social work department will determine whether it's urgent or not. If it's urgent, they can deal with things really quickly. If they take the view it's not urgent, then you can be waiting 8, 9, 10, 12, sometimes 24 months, depending upon where you are. It just depends upon the pressures of the local authority at that particular time. How long do you get your guardianship for would be the next thing. Usually it's three years, sometimes it's five. But at the end of that period, you have to come back to the court again and go through more or less the same process to have your powers renewed. That's the way the state makes sure that someone looks in on you to make sure that everything is okay. In theory, you're supposed to have a mental health officer that comes and has a chat with you every year or so to find out how things are going. That depends on which local authority area you end up in and the resources are becoming thinner and thinner on the ground. And basically, it's almost the case if you're left alone now between the granting of the powers and when it comes for renewal again. And that's why people are more keen on making sure that orders are three years or five years to force you to come back, to force you to come back into the system and be checked again to make sure all is well, because people do drop out of the system. Because no one really has the resources to get involved unless you need to be involved. And the final wee discussion for today is, what does it all cost? Is it free? Is it not free? Well, the good news is that for the most for most people, it's entirely free. For some people, you might have to pay something towards it. And by you, I'm talking about the individual that you're looking for guardianship for. So let's explore that in a bit more detail. Legal aid is in two type, two parts, two types, if you like. You have in-court legal aid, which as long as you're looking for welfare powers, is entirely free for everybody. You could be a zillionaire you'd still get it free for in-court legal aid as long as you're looking for something to do with a welfare application at that point. However, the out-of-court legal aid is a different form of legal aid, and that is means-tested, just like the usual state benefits. So you only get that legal aid if your financial circumstances are such that you qualify. Now, I'm using you here where your youngster that you're looking for guardianship for is still within the education system, the assessment involves not only the young adult with incapacity, but also their parents. That's how the system works. There are various exceptions to that, but by and large, that's how it works with your youngsters within the education system. And what that means is we have to aggregate everyone's income and saving together to see if they still qualify. The saving limit's about, the income limit's about £254 a week, and the savings limit is round about £1,700. If your youngster is no longer in education, then they are assessed on their own. Or if it's your Auntie Jean or Uncle John or whoever, they're assessed on their own income, which has nothing to do with you, the person that applies. And those savings limits start at £1,700 if the person's under 60. And if they're over 60, you can have £25,000, £26,000, £27,000 in the bank, own your own house, and have your Rolls Royce in the, the drive. And you would still qualify for out-of-court legal advice and assistance. It's a two-minute task. That's all it takes, but not all solicitors do that on legal aid. Some solicitors require that to be done on a private basis, which is why you should always check whether legal aid is available and whether I can get it free. And the final thing before I end is this. 
I get asked, do you need a solicitor to do this? Now, the reality is that you don't actually need a solicitor to do any of this. You can theoretically do it yourself. However, in my experience, good luck with that. I've had to come in and dig out clients who've tried and started it themselves to get it into an order where it can go to the court, where all the various reports are available and can be produced. And apart from anything else, the doctors usually charge for the medical reports that involve. So why would you pay that out of someone's money when you can get it free from the legal aid board, as I've said, where the vast majority of people get it free? And that's, if you like, an introduction to what's involved. And I pass it back. Thank you very much, Martin, for that uh, rapid run-through of, of guardianship and what, what people need to do. Um, there, there are a couple of questions, actually, that, that came to my mind as, as you were talking, which I think we can maybe cover now, and they may be covered again the next time. But, but one, you, you talked about having to go back into the system for your guardianship uh, every three to five years. So if you do that, does that go through the whole cost process again, or is, or is it a slightly... Um, I'm a simplified version of, of what's what's going on. It's the same cost process. It is a simplified version and the same legal aid rules apply. Right, okay. You have, you have fewer reports and it's quicker. Right. So so that's something you need to kind of build into your head is that there is going to be a cost every, well, potentially a cost every, of, of the, the out-of-court um, expenses every three to five years. Absolutely. What we generally recommend to people is once they've gone through it the first time and had to pay for it, you just make sure you spend as much of the funds as possible on behalf of the individual you're looking after and generally don't try and accrue savings because that's going to cost you later on in relation to when you apply for renewal. There's bound to be something you can buy which will make sure you're under the legal aid limit when the time comes. Right. Okay. That's useful advice. <laughs> Tips and wrinkles as to how to make it work. The other one um, that you, you said you have to ask for, for the powers that, that you need um, when you apply. So... Was that something that your solicitor will be able to advise you on as to what kind of things you're likely to need? or And if you, if it changes, can you go back? Is that a complicated thing? Yes, you can change at any point. First of all, the solicitor will guide you through what powers are usually required, and we tailor them to suit. And we do that based upon what we are told, how the particular individual relates, what condition the original the individual has. And we more or less know what's going to be required in those circumstances. We make suggestions. Client tells us yes, no something else and we proceed on that basis now if having acquired all these powers suddenly we realize oh actually something else is required then you can come back to the court and the court can grant you extra powers the legal aid board rules are different at that point and that gets a little bit more complicated which is beyond the level that we want to talk about just now but you can come back at any point to add on extra powers add on extra guardians add on substitute guardians all these things can be done Okay, thank you. That's just those are the ones that came into my head as as, as you were talking. So, I think we will bring the, um, the podcast to a close there um, and say to people that you know, as we said, we've got two more coming. So the next one, if 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 you think guardianship something that will you will be needing, then it's really going to be well worth listening to it because we'll go much more through the process of, of what you need to do and who has to be involved. Um, and then, as I said, the, the final one will be sharing the experience of someone who's been there and done it. Um, so thank you very much, Martin. I look forward to our next chat when we find out a bit more. Um, and if I, I say to people, I'll put um, 
whatever resources I can find into the, the show notes. So I'll get, um, I've got the details of the parent carer's legal support. Is that it? So I'm trying piece pickles anyway. That's a much easier way to remember it. Um, and, and any other information that we think would be useful to you, um, a link to the Office of the Public Guardian or something like that, because they've got information on their website as well. Um, and then you can work, join us or not, depending on whether you're interested in when the next one comes along. So thank you very much, Martin. Thank you to everybody for listening. And we hope you found that really useful. And I will be speaking to you or we will be speaking to you again soon. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.